All right, I have a question before we begin, and I'd just like to give the tech folks a moment to make sure that the audio is working for the stream. So here's my question, and we can put it up on the screen. Anybody here, can you hold a two-minute plank? We've got some hands. Is anybody willing to come on up here and demonstrate? <laughs> All right. Feet up on the stairs, arms down on the, the floor there. You can pick the amount of incline, but yes, at least one stair. You want an incline? All right. <laughs> All right, we have two brave volunteers. Tim is going to time. All right, and, and everybody is going to be distracted by this for the next little while, I realize. That's, uh, so. <laughs> All right. The reason that I'm asking this question is because, like anything, if, if I just pulled somebody off the street, especially somebody who looks like me, and asked them to do this, I would not expect them to succeed. Why? Because anything worth doing, almost all of it requires some practice. And, you know, doing a 15-second plank, I'm there. Doing two minutes starts to get a little difficult. I have a bass guitar that I got for Christmas. And because it's been kind of a busy year, I have played it very little. And as a result, I'm lousy. Until I practice more, I'm going to have issues, OK? So if your experience of praying, hey, we're connecting with the actual topic here, is hearing other people do it, uh, or maybe at mealtimes, like when my brother was a, a little boy, he would say, dear God, thank you for the food. Amen. Pass the bread. The, One more minute. The pass the bread was part of his prayer, not the most sophisticated thing. It's, it's probable that you're going to begin your prayers without being ones that we're going to want to record for future generations. We're still in a lot of tension about this whole plank exercise. Good for you. But here's the thing that's even bigger than a plank. God hears our prayers. Isn't that crazy? All right, so 1 John chapter 5, we're going to go there. We're going to start in verse 14. We're coming up on two minutes. How much longer, 20 Tim? seconds. 20? 20. Do a countdown from 10. I will tell you in one sec. Fabulous. <laughs> 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Well done. <laughs> All right. So if anybody deserves a donut with their coffee cake, it's you two. Though that will be counterproductive in anyway. All right, 1 John chapter 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know, if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Okay, language gets a little, little confusing there, but God hears us, and yet John implies that there are some conditions here. John says we're to ask according to God's will. And he assumes in the first place that we need to ask God for things. Now, asking somebody for something is 
virtually everybody knows how to do this, right? I mean, even Miller men can occasionally do that. But this business of asking God according to his will, completely unnatural. We, none of us, start off life able to do this because we're not in accord with God's will because we start off as little rebels and we grow up to be bigger rebels. And until Jesus enters our life and we follow him, we're going to continue to be rebels and we still have a little rebel lurking there down beneath the surface, if we're honest. So what we need to do, we need to talk about connecting with God in prayer this morning. That's really the primary thing. Individually, our prayer lives need to be rooted there in this relationship, in a growing connection to our creator and our savior. But collectively, we also need to think about, as a church, how we pray together. So D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh minister and a medical doctor, so you know he was an overachiever. Here's what he said. This gospel cannot be preached properly and truly except it be in an atmosphere of prayer. And I repeat, it is of urgent importance that we understand this. So if our dependence upon God is essential in personal prayer and in the effectiveness of our proclamation of the gospel as the church, we really do need to consider how to pray. And so that's the very imaginative title of this week's sermon. And I want to start off with kind of a grab bag of things I want to suggest. How do we pray? Well, like a child, like children. What does that mean? Lots of good things have been said on this subject. Things like, well, think about the frankness of children generally, their dependence, their trust of those that they trust. But I'd like us to think about this a little bit differently than that. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, is thinking more about the relational aspect of our being God's children than thinking about the characteristics of children. You see the difference? One's about the relationship. The other is about what, what a child is like. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, here's what he says. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to what? To sonship. You're now a child. And by him we cry, Papa. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Paul says it again, basically, okay? Children, we are children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So if you have depended upon Jesus for your salvation, you are God's child. The Spirit leads us and reminds us that we are God's children, that God is our almighty, perfect Father. And however great or poor your father was, you've got a new one, and he's always going to be perfect. Now, inheriting things, that's what heirs do. And I was thinking about my brother-in-law, Kay. He said, Mike, I'd like some tools that Mickey had. That's my dad. And I said, sure, what, what are you thinking of? He's like, I don't actually care. I just want some tools that I will use, and I'll think about him whenever I pick them up, and I'll think about what he did with them when I'm using them. I was like, man, that's really sweet, this this identification with dad, this reminder of dad. And we're co-heirs, church, 
of an even greater father and an even greater inheritance than Mickey Miller and his tools. Some of them were pretty good, but big, big inheritance here. We have the kind of relationship with God that is literally unthinkable for most of the people on the earth right now and most of the people on the earth throughout history. Unfathomable to be able to have this kind of access to God that we enjoy through Jesus. So when we, when we pray, let's remember that he is the one who has made access for us to him, who's given us standing. That's what Jesus' name is about. It's the, the ability to get into God's presence and be heard, which we didn't have a claim on except for the work of Jesus. He's provided a way for us to follow him. All right, let's make this a little faster. Alone, together, how do we pray? The short answer is yes. Tough, right? I think sometimes people get the impression um, from how some Bible verses are phrased that, that the teaching is we're only to pray in private, in hiding. And we'll deal with this uh, indirectly, but a little more in a bit. But yes, please pray alone and please pray with other people. And if you feel that you can't possibly pray with others, <gasps> out loud? Just know, many, many people have felt that way before, including a bunch of people in this room, and somehow over the course of time, they've not only managed it, but they've experienced a different level of interaction with believers and with God because they were able to participate in a group communication with God. We're not, in other words, starting you off with the two-minute plank, okay? You don't have to jump into the deep end of the pool before you even have inflated your water wings. So let's keep going. Former, form, former, formal or casual. So some people grew up hearing very formal prayers. Some churches have a very formal prayer language. They use a book that has formal prayers written in it. A lot of people grew up, I mean, for nearly 400 years, more than 400 years maybe, the King James Version was the version of the Bible that English-speaking Christians used. And the language of that Bible is elevated, and it's gorgeous, but it's also incomprehensible to a lot of moderns. So if somebody grew up reading the Bible in that kind of ornate language, they might pray that way. Other people are, are just like, I... I I didn't grow up around praying people. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. I feel uncomfortable because I don't know whether I'm supposed to say one kind of thing or another. Okay, I'd like to address that a little bit more in its own place, but briefly, the idea is don't pray elaborate prayers either to impress God or to impress us. That's not what prayer is about. Okay, one more thing, pre-written prayers. Pre-written prayers, is, isn't that cheating? Yes, yes, it's permissible. I found something I didn't know my mom had in, in her things when I was cleaning all the, the stuff out of my parents' house. And uh, Book of Common Prayer, this is a, a book that has prayers for certain days, it has ceremonies and, and things like that. It has a number of helps for somebody who needs a little structure to a prayer life, to a Bible study life. 
And it doesn't look particularly worn, so I don't recall ever seeing my mother using it, but I snagged it anyway. I have occasionally used an electronic version that I have to, hey, what's the reading for today? Hey, is there a prayer today? And I decided that rather than read one out of here, I wanted to pause right now, and as a prayer, I want to read somebody else's prayer. <gasps> okay, this is going to be uh, a prayer that was used by John Stott, and it's collected in a set of his notes. John Stott was an English pastor, so we've, we've gone all over the British, uh, southern British uh, Isles region today. It's Father's Day, and praying a blessing that was prayed by another pastor in a different time seems kind of appropriate. So if you would bow your heads for just a moment, let me read John Stott's prayer. Or, um, here we go. Our Heavenly Father, all human fatherhood is but a reflection of yours, and all our love is derived from your love. So bless every home of our community and our congregation. Grant that husbands may love and keep their wives, and wives may love and submit to their husbands. Their children may love and obey their parents, and their parents may love and care for their children, not provoking them to anger, but bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord Jesus for his name's sake. Amen. Now, I like seeing what other people have prayed. These prayers can be helpful, but other people can be wrong in a way that scripture isn't wrong. One of the things I liked about this prayer is Stott took bits of instruction from scripture and melded them together in a prayer for the house, household. Here's the thing. You might have heard something in that prayer that you didn't like. It's from scripture. That's where your beef is. <clears throat> All right. The word of God doesn't fail, even if it's sometimes hard and often contradicts our thoughts and feelings. So the first big idea is to pray using scripture. The first approach we're going to look at is a simple one. Read scripture and pray through it. Well, I can do that. Well, here's an explanation first from Dietrich Bonhoeffer for why we do this. He wrote this as part of a seminary training for pastors in Germany basically hiding from the Nazis, trying to train pastors so that they could lead faithful churches under the Nazi regime. Here's what he said. The child learns to speak because the parent speaks to the child. The child learns the language of the parent. So we learn to speak to God because God has spoken and speaks to us. In the language of the Father in heaven, God's children learn to speak with God. Repeating God's own words, we begin to pray to God. We ought to speak to God, and God wishes to hear us, not in the false and confused language of our heart, but in the clear and pure language that God has spoken to us in Jesus Christ. And here's my problem with teaching this. For most of us, the reading part of Scripture is, is hard. So oftentimes it's hard to know how to be inspired to pray through it. So here's my approach for praying through a passage. I've got a few steps for you. We're gonna spend more time on noticing in this model and less time formulating a prayer. What am I gonna pray? What am I gonna pray? No, what does it say? We're gonna to try to turn off the noise in our heads and actually pay attention to the word of God. Before we pray, we're going to stop, we're going to look, and we're going to listen. 
Now, we're not at a train crossing, but we are addressing the creator of everything, the judge of everyone, and so there's even more than a freight train's worth of importance here. So the first step is to stop. Here's the extent to which Jesus, the God-man, living on earth, took the stopping. Here's how far he took it. He feeds 5,000 plus their dependents. And then in Matthew 14, verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Disciples by crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. So he gets off by himself and he's not with anybody and he spends time there. Jesus took off to pray by himself. This guy is the, I can't think of a more electrifying, popular figure in world history. So it's not surprising that he wanted to get away from crowds sometime. But if you think about it, why did Jesus need to get away? He, he's God. Why, why is this a problem? Well, he wanted to communicate with God in a way that required more of him than he could give in a crowd. And I'm not saying that for us, if you're busy, if you're in the middle, you're feeling right under it, whatever the circumstances are, that you, you shouldn't pray. I'm saying for this method of prayer, you actually need a little space in your life. So maybe pick a time when, I don't know, you're not on kid duty. You're not on call for work. Turn off your phone. Find a place where you won't be continuously interrupted. Don't interrupt yourself with food or music or fussing in the mirror or whatever is your tendency to uh, get distracted from the point. So you stop and you make a place of quiet, even if it's imperfect quiet, and even if 10 minutes is all you can manage. So you've stopped, now you look. And what I mean here is look into scripture. Don't use your phone for this if you can avoid it because what happens once you break out the phone? Yeah, it's buzzing. People are contacting you, news is coming up. So the, there's this invention that's been around for a while and it's, it, it's, it's made mostly out of dead trees and, uh, and, and there are fewer distractions in here unless you're really a nut for margin notes. So find your Bible and you're gonna, you're gonna look into it. And where do you look in the Bible? There are tons of reading plans out there. There are tons of them. Uh, my problem with reading plans is I'm not consistently disciplined enough to stick to them, and I'm working on that this year. Uh, however, I wanted to give you a short, simple answer for how to pick something to pray. So here's my answer. Open your Bible around the middle, and then shuffle around. If you hit Proverbs, you, you're too far. Find Psalm, and then move all the way back to Psalm 1. Okay, and if you make it through Psalm 1 today, then the next time you do this, maybe tomorrow, go to Psalm 2, right? So this is the pattern then. And here's the thing. Some of the Psalms are crazy long. Sometimes your 10 minutes is going to shrink to three minutes. So give yourself some space. If all you get through are four verses and there are 17, don't beat yourself up. Don't give up. Pick up where you left off on the next day. Does that make sense? Read your psalm or part of one and then listen. 
And this listening part can be so hard. We want a YouTube video to tell us what to think about the passage we just read. So as soon as I'm done reading, I'm like, huh, I wonder what this means. I wonder what that means. I wonder what, but worse than that, I want a snack. Oh, suddenly I have to go to the bathroom. Oh, what's on my to-do list for today? All the things that I tried to stop come rushing back into my mind as soon as I'm not reading again. And here's the deal. You have to swat those thoughts away and think about what the text says. And sometimes after I swat them away and I can focus again, I go, I don't remember what the passage says. I have to read it again. It's okay if you have to read it again too. The goal isn't an empty mind. The goal is a mind fully absorbed in what God has said in his word, which you have just read, and maybe twice, and maybe three times, or however many times it takes. So here's what Bonhoeffer said about thinking about what's in a psalm. Now remember, this is a guy who's advocating praying through the psalms in Nazi Germany. Psalms, the hymn book of the Hebrew Bible, not the most popular book, not the most popular group of people at the time, and he's going, nope, I'm publishing this book because it's that important, and I want pastors to know, and I want believers to know. If we want to read and to pray the prayers of the Bible, especially the Psalms, we must not, therefore, first ask what they have to do with us, but what they have to do with Jesus Christ. We must ask how we can understand the Psalms as God's word, and only then can we pray them with Jesus Christ. It does not matter whether Psalms express exactly what we feel in our heart at the moment we pray. Perhaps precisely, it is the case that we must pray against our own heart in order to pray rightly. Now, where do I see the prediction of Jesus in this passage, perhaps? Where do I see the character of Jesus in this passage? Where do I see my need for Jesus in this passage? Even though the Psalms aren't going to mention Jesus's name, I'm going to have to figure that out for myself. And then how is God's word moving me? And now I pray. What prayer comes out of the psalm as you read? What idea in the psalm came to life as you thought about it? What aspect of your Messiah struck you? Pray, tell God what you saw. Tell him what was great. Tell him what was confusing. Tell him what you appreciate and what you're a little afraid of because it sounds hard. You've taken a passage of scripture You've stopped dealing with distractions. You've looked at God's word. You've listened for the big picture that God is revealing. You've prayed along those lines. That's fantastic. It's a method. Okay, that's all it is. It's a method. And it's far from the only one. In fact, the most famous one, a framework of prayer, was introduced by Jesus. And, uh, you know, we know it as the Lord's Prayer. A model of prayer isn't like my reading the John Stott prayer word for word, more or less. It's not like reading something from the Book of Common Prayer. It's a pattern found in Scripture. And so we're going to look at a couple, but the Lord's Prayer is obviously the primary one because its intention was to be a model of prayer for Jesus' disciples. If you count yourself as one, then we ought to be paying attention. So before we talk about the prayer itself, here's the setting. Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer has the disciples hearing Jesus pray and asking him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John the Baptist taught his disciples. Matthew's version places this teaching in where? The Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of different context. What's going on? I think both happened. I think the disciples were like, 
hey, we need more training. We're not picking this up. And I think Jesus included it in his standard address to people, which is what we think the Sermon on the Mount was. We don't think that was a one-time event. We think he was teaching people wherever he went some of these principles. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Matthew 6, and we're going to start with Jesus explaining how not to pray. So verses 5 and 6 start this way. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, okay? For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay, does this mean only pray in a closet? It does not. What it means is, don't be praying for show. Don't be like the hypocrites who are standing on the corner with their Mr. Microphone, wowing the passers-by with their visible praying. Standing on a paint bucket, I don't know, I spent too much time in Berkeley, so I've got specific pictures in my mind of people doing this. Very unimpressive and unpersuasive. And Jesus says, if you are looking to be noticed by your prayers, you've got all the reward you're going to get for that. If you want to be noticed and you get noticed, well, you're done. But Jesus points out another way to pray. So there's the hypocrites making a big deal of themselves. And then in verses 7 and 8, When you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pagans doesn't mean unreligious people. It means people who pray to impress a God they don't know. There's no personal relationship here for the pagan. The pagan is going, I need to get God's attention. Child, if you are in Christ, you have God's attention already. You don't need to do this. You don't have to pray like these people who need to get noticed in order to get their prayer answered. So Jesus doesn't say, don't pray, even though God knows what you want before you ask. Instead, he says, the number of words that you use, that doesn't get you any credit with the one true God. I had a nominally Muslim co-worker, and he was a, a young man. He was looking for a spouse, and he said, I'm looking online. And I said, oh, how's that going? He's like, well, the thing I'm finding we're connecting over is there are these prayers that, that people share, and by reading the prayer, you're supposed to, I don't know, it gives you kind of extra credit. And I was like, wow, thinking about that, that is kind of interesting because individually, you get extra credit, and then In the community, you get extra credit because hopefully you're connecting with a a young woman. And even though he didn't particularly follow Islam, he culturally followed it. He wanted a wife who culturally followed it. And so it was a way of connecting. It had nothing to do with a relationship with God because that's not what he was contemplating. So what should we do instead? I've heard the Lord's Prayer described as four directions of prayer. This is a Daniel Henderson thing. So I'm going to go with that. Jesus starts by looking up in Matthew 6, 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see that? So we're looking up. Father in heaven, holy be your name. Okay, we see the perfect holy God. We're looking at God the way he is revealed in scripture, not the way we've dressed him up in our heads. We pray adoring prayers to our Father and our God. And St. Augustine 
uh, answered a question you might have, uh, have uh, occurred to you about this, which is hallowing, that make, it, it's, it's a way of saying makes, make holy. Why do I need to make holy God who's already holy? What's going on there? And Augustine said, hey, here's the deal. You're not reminding God that he's holy. You're reminding yourself that he is holy. You're not making God different than he was. You are making God different in your own mind and heart than he was because your understanding of him is always going to be deficient compared to how great and holy he is. You see what I'm saying there? However much I glorify God in my heart, there's more of him to adore, to worship, to praise, to be overwhelmed by. So by worshiping in the, him in this way, I make him holy, holier in my heart than he started. All right. Next, we look down. So we looked up to God. Now we look down. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we acknowledge that God's ways, the ways of his kingdom, should come, will come, are coming as they already are in heaven. Heaven works the way he intended. And here we are. It doesn't work that way, but it's working itself out that way. The kingdom of God is coming. Um, Let's go up the British Isles to Scotland for uh, Robert Murray McShane, who said, Oh, if anything has been done for your soul, give him glory. Give no praise to others. Give all praise to him. And give him the dominion to yield yourselves unto him, soul and body. He encapsulates up and down. So set aside myself and yield to God. Be a Mike. Be a Dan. Be a Chris. who's more holy, who's more set apart, not because we esteemed ourselves to be, but because we submitted ourselves to the Holy One. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? We are his children, and God, I pledge myself to you. your service, is what you're saying. I respond to your awesome power, to your glorious goodness in my life. Let your will be done in my life. I might not like all of it, harmonize my opinion with yours. I want to submit to you. So down is a place to say, compared to you, I don't have it all answered, and so I want your answer. I like a car with a fine sense of control. I don't have a car like that. I drive a Subaru. But I drove my father's uh, GMC product a few months ago, and uh, do 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 was kind of how, how it went. Sloppy steering, sloppy braking, sloppy accelerator. Uh, no thank you. I didn't like it. It drove me nuts. But I'm telling you, friends, I'm a GMC. Okay? When it comes to God driving me, my controls are not crisp. We don't corner well because I want to go off on my own direction where inertia takes me. But when I look upward at God and I look downward at myself, I notice how sloppy my steering is, and I want God to tighten me up, and that's what we're doing as we look down. Let's continue, verse 11 and 12. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
This morning, of course, we also ask that God would give us today our coffee cake. All right, back to Augustine, who said nothing about coffee cake as far as I'm aware. He said that starting in verse 11, Jesus is focusing our prayer on the needs of our present life. And this is the in of our model of prayer. Up, down, in. All right, we're thinking about ourselves. I have requests. I often take my daily bread for granted. I want to claim credit for having earned it. But God is the resource master, and I need his resources. I need not only to feed my family, I need to clothe them. I'd like to continue to house them. I hope to see their education through, can I get an amen from a college student? (laughs) All right, I got one of these, fine. I need God's resources when it comes to my body functioning well enough to be useful for his service. Eh. I need my mind to remember, you know, that word that, nouns. I need my mind to remember nouns. That's what I need. But I also need relationships. I need solo time, but I need to connect with my wife and my kids and my staff and some of you I'm over to do, over to do, over to do to meet with. And some relationships get a little sideways because my foot is perfectly shaped to fit in my mouth. So I need a good God's intervention in creating, in repairing, in maintaining, and growing relationships if I'm going to be involved in them. So having looked inward, I'm going to look outward. Here's verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus is saying, you're about to go out and do some stuff today, and it's not all going to be easy. So we've looked at God in reverence, we've looked down and responded humbly to who he is, we've looked in at our needs, and now we're looking outward to what awaits us. And Jesus says, there's trouble out there. He literally said elsewhere not to worry about tomorrow, because how much trouble does today have? Enough trouble of its own. Worry about today today. So we're asking him as we conclude this kind of prayer to make us people who can follow him out into our day. We can't handle what's coming, but with God's help, we can. So let me illustrate this with a prayer. Here's a text, Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Okay, I could just read that. It's a prayer from scripture. Legit. But I could also pray, all-knowing, all-wise God, whose plans are beyond human understanding, especially mine. That's pointing up. Too often, I want to second-guess you, Lord. I have thought you owed me when I'm in debt to you for my life, which you have redeemed by Jesus. Thank you for that intervention. All right, that was down. In, please God, make me dependent on you. Build my relationship with you by growing my trust in you that you know what you're doing. And then out and make me an agent of your mercy and grace, not a carrier of condemnation, to those I encounter. Transform me, transform them into the likeness of your son, in whose name I pray. Amen. All right, one last pattern. We're going to spend a little less time on this, 
but I wanted to mention it because culturally I am not aware of a place and time where people are less equipped to deal with hardship, tough times, difficulties, conflict, than we are right here and right now. But there's a way to be honest about what's troubling us, even when we're talking to God. We can engage with God, even when we're frustrated by what's going on, and we maybe even want to blame him. And that way is our last model of prayer. It's called the lament. And lament happens all over the place in scripture. In fact, there's a book called Lamentations, which is a big, long lament. And the Basic pattern, it varies a bit, but the basic pattern of this model of prayer looks like this in scripture. Turn to God, complain to God, ask God, and trust God. Isn't that cool? Number two, you get to complain to God. God can handle this. That's exciting. Let's take a look at how that pattern plays out in a short psalm. Psalm 13, here's what verse one says. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Wow, David comes in hot. He's turning to God, but you see he's, he's both complaining and questioning in doing so. Okay, that's all right. He's coming to the right place. The primary thing I take away from this is that David has begun to address God. He's not complaining to his friends. He's not, I don't know, beating his horse. He is confronting God with what he sees going on, and he's ready for some robust dialogue. Verse two, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Here's the complaint. I'm continually sad, God. I'm in my own head all the time, and I feel like the opposition has the upper hand. And all of these things were true more than once in David's life. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons that, that that stretch of scripture is amazing to read because here's a guy who's faithful to God almost all the time despite living a life that nobody wants to sign up for if they think it through. He got practice crying out to God in this way. Verses three and four, look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. There's no question marks here, but David is asking a question. He's asking God to help me. Will you help me? Will you strengthen me? Will you deliver me? He feels practically done to death, and he needs God's strength and the victory only God can provide. All right, last two verses. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. And you go, oh, somebody else bolted that on at the end. That's too optimistic. And there are people who make claims like that. But here's what David is doing. He's closing this lament with, with noticing two, two things. God's character, what God is like. And David knows that because of his relationship with God. And God's past actions and he knows that not only personally, but in the, the history of the nation that David would lead. God's love never fails. So even when all is more difficult than we feel we can handle, God's love still can sustain us. And as we trust him, both to save us into a relationship with him forever and to see through today's trouble, we become more and more aware of his track record, not just for David, 
but for us as well. So we blitzed through a bunch of ideas about how to pray. So as the Neeflings come up, I want to just remind us of some key things. Prayer is like anything worth doing well. It takes time, okay? We didn't go 10-minute planks, um, and that would have been entertaining, but that's not where we start in any event. God provides himself to us, for us, through prayer, both individually and together for the sake of the gospel. Relationship is built with God when we pray, especially when we pray, as Bonhoeffer said, the words of God to himself as we learn his language of expression. Any passage of scripture can be prayed through. So stop, look, listen, and pray. Jesus modeled our pattern of prayer. One way to describe it is up in reverence, down in response, in for requests, and out for readiness. And pain and sorrow are things that Jesus promised would characterize our lives. But God's word is full of examples of lament in which the pattern is turn to God, complain to God, ask God for what we need, and then trust God based on his character. Because God knows what suffering and loss are like. God shouldn't have to know that because of his perfection. He doesn't deserve it, but he does. And he is our greatest help when we face him. So, I found myself, as I was clearing out 50 years of cruft from my parents' house, uh, <clears throat> complaining out loud to my parents. And at some point, I noticed that that was odd. Uh, I don't know what I expected them to you know, go back and do about it. And I, I said, OK, I really need to personally redirect to lament. And I said, God, I, I, I need your help here. And God changed my experience. It was still rough, but I have been so uplifted by how many circumstances he brought to mind of how gracious he's been through my parents, to my parents, in much difficulty and much sorrow. And I said, God, in this time of griping, you were close to me, and I am so grateful. So let me close in prayer. God, I thank you that the relationship that you offer with us isn't we be good and you looking on to criticize. The relationship that you offer isn't the worst father, it's the best father. You want the best for me and for each person in this room more than we want it. And you know what it is. Would you move us to take a step another five seconds of plank in our prayer life in a way that connects us with who you really are? And would you move us by the power of your grace manifest in the work of Jesus to follow you more closely, to love you more deeply, and to serve others in a way that only you can empower us to do? Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your church. And thank you most of all, that your word shows us what you're like and that we can trust you. It's because of that that I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.